Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Many commentators have observed that the spring feasts have been fulfilled in Yeshua. And they say that the fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled. I don't fully agree, but there's some good arguments for this idea. What, after all, does the sounding of the shofar have to do with Yeshua? We can't really say the sounding of the shofar has been fulfilled in Yeshua. And yet, there is that great shofar that will one day call from heaven to announce the return of the Messiah. So it's a future fulfillment in Rosh Hashanah. The Day of Atonement in the ancient practice of the tabernacle and the temples was fulfilled when Yeshua became sin for us and was actually represented in both of the goats of the Yom Kippur offering, the one to Adonai and the one to Azazel. Both goats were the sacrificial goats. But what atonement lies ahead if not the atonement for the whole earth when Yeshua is crowned king? When he is crowned king and there is an atonement for the whole earth. So a future fulfillment. And Tabernacles reminds us of living in tents in the wilderness. So, also, Yeshua was the word that was made flesh and tabernacled among us. But Zechariah 14 tells of a future time when all the nations that were at one time against Israel come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, to observe Sukkot in Jerusalem. So there is a future fulfillment as well. Sunday night we will gather in our sukkah, we will observe the most joyous festival of the year in the Jewish world. I'm going to talk more about that in a few moments, but first, does anyone know which festival we are observing today? Raise your hand if you think you know what festival we're observing today. Okay, well, I'm going to um, read to you from Leviticus 23. Adonai said to Moshe, tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai which you are to proclaim as holy convocations are my designated times. Work is to be done on six days, but the seventh day is a Shabbat of complete rest. It was a trick question, wasn't it? Complete rest, a holy convocation. You are not to do any kind of work. It is a Shabbat for Adonai, even in your homes. 
So it's kind of a trick question. We are observing a festival every week, and it is a festival of the remembrance of creation, a festival of the remembrance that God made the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Let's let that sink in for just a moment. Complete rest. Not any kind of work. A holy convocation. This is a holy convocation. Breathe in, breathe out. If you are not working and you are gathered in a holy convocation, then you are right in the center of God's will. Because that's what he commanded us to do today. So I hope you're doing it. I hope you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Relax. This particular Shabbat, inserted as it is between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, offers a Torah portion of interesting significance. Namely, Ha'azinu, which you've already heard some of it, Give your ears, listen. But to whom is it addressed? Do you remember? Eric read it. It's addressed to the heavens and the earth. Meaning, we're supposed to learn a song that starts out, Hear, O heavens and earth. Who are we talking to, heavens and earth? Well, I guess everyone in the heavens and everyone in the earth, and the heavens and the earth, I suppose. Interesting way to start a song. I want to take a few minutes also this morning to prepare us for Sukkot, but I'm using the song Ha'azinu to do this, to prepare us for Sukkot. And so there are a few important observations about this song, Ha'azinu. First, there is the introduction in the previous portion when Hashem instructs Moses to teach the song to the sons of Israel so that they would learn it and be able to recite it because the song will be a witness for Hashem. When the people have turned to other gods and calamities and troubles have come, their descendants will still be reciting the song Ha'azinu and it will be a witness to them. So now that's the introduction in the previous portion. And then we have this portion, Hazinu. But Moses' job assignment here is to cause the people in Israel to recite the words of the song, and somehow, after all the troubles have come, they will know why they are experiencing calamities. They will be reciting and they will understand that the cause of all their difficulties is not that Hashem has forsaken them, but that their own unfaithfulness is the cause of their troubles. So it's not to blame God, but to blame ourselves. An interesting concept, not something that is the natural way of thinking. It's always got to be someone else's fault, doesn't it? Well, that's what we see in the natural. Second, the content of Ha'azinu makes the case for the goodness of God 
And that's what Eric was reading about us. His goodness toward Israel versus the unfaithfulness of Israel. He makes his case. The song is addressed to the heavens and an earth. So we try to imagine that after all the sons of Israel have learned this song, whenever they recite it, they are singing to the heavens and the earth. It starts out gently. The part that Eric read was the gentle part. May my teaching fall like the rain. May my speech condense like the dew. Like light rain on blades of grass or showers on growing palms. Isn't that nice? And then the content becomes a little more specific. For I will proclaim the name of Adonai. Come, declare the greatness of our God, Dwayne Johnson. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> the scripture in verse 4 here says, The Rock. So as much as we may like Dwayne Johnson, here we read, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a trustworthy God who does no wrong. He is righteous and straight. Forgive me, Dwayne, <clears throat> but you don't quite measure up to this rock. We proclaim and sing the praises and the greatness of our God. But verse 5 is the beginning of trouble. He is not corrupt. The defect is in his children. Uh-oh. Now it starts. A crooked and a perverse generation. You foolish people, so lacking in wisdom. Is this how you repay Adonai? He is your father who made you his. It was he who formed and prepared you. What? What a scolding tone of voice. I mean, this is really, I am, I'm not going to read the whole song, but you should read it for yourself. But I want to draw out a few points. First of all, having built his case against the house of Israel, detailing their ungrateful behavior and describing all that he would do to punish them, even to the point of wanting to erase, their mem erase them from memory, their memory from the face of the earth. He says in verse 36, Yes, Adonai will judge his people, taking pity on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone, that no one is left slave or free, so in spite of all the calamities and all the troubles, here's an interesting word. The judgment is complete. He's going to take pity on his servants. It's a ray of hope, isn't it? The judgment will last until their strength is gone. So there's an end to it and a purpose that results in their exhaustion when the Lord will take pity 
What does this look like? In verse 39, he says, See now that I, yes, I am he, and there is no God beside me. I put to death and I make alive. I wound and I heal. No one saves from my hand. Though he has put to death and wounded, he will also make alive and heal. He's talking here about resurrection of the dead. He's talking about being healed from the wounding of his people. Resurrection, life and health, another ray of hope. And in verse 43, he turns against the enemies of his people. Sing out, you nations, about his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance to his adversaries and make atonement for the land of his people. A promise of vengeance and a promise of atonement on behalf of his people. Earlier in verses 26 and 27, he makes it clear that he did not destroy Israel, at least in part, one of the reasons he did not destroy Israel was because of Israel's enemies. Quote, I considered putting an end to them, erasing their memory from the human race, but I feared the insolence of their enemy, feared that their foes would think, we ourselves accomplished this. Adonai had nothing to do with it. Anytime God says that he fears something, I take note. Of what was God afraid? It was that if he wiped out Israel, that Israel's enemies would think that this was because of their own power, not God. They would not fear God. They would think they themselves accomplished the complete destru destruction of Israel. Ever heard of any tyrants who thought that they would be the one to destroy Israel? And God is saying, I'm not going to let Israel be destroyed lest you think that you did this. That's a forever promise. So this is the limit that God places on the punishment of Israel. It's that all the nations are worthy of punishment, not just Israel. So when God chastises Israel, he is concerned about the other nations are thinking and seeing he wants them to know you're next because judgment begins at the household of God. He is concerned that they are thinking God was not able to control his own people, so he had to destroy them. They see the God of Israel as powerless since he had to destroy his own people. In, in a sense, destroying his people is like destroying himself. If he is the God of Israel and there is no more Israel, then who is he? He's been diminished. 
His plan to use Israel to bring a testimony of God's power and goodness to the nations would fail. God would be a big failure. Even though he needed to subdue the rebellion of his people, he also had to take pity on them and promise an atonement. By taking pity on them and bringing atonement, he is also promising to all the nations of the world that he is able to judge the nations through the remnant of his people, Israel. This song is meant as a testimony or a witness against the sons of Israel. It is to put the fear of God into the people so that reliance will be only upon God and no longer set up foolish idols. And this brings us back to Sukkot. In Nehemiah, after the Babylonians conquered Israel and took them away, he also allowed them to come back and rebuild Jerusalem and her walls. So you see, destruction followed by resurrection. The resurrection of Jerusalem, if you will. In chapter 8, they gathered with one accord in front of the water gate. It's a hotel up in D.C. And they asked Ezra, you've never heard of Watergate? Hmm. Must have been before your time. <clears throat> asked Ezra, the Torah teacher, to bring the scroll of the Torah, the five books of Moses, to read it. It was the first day of the seventh month. Let's see, the first day. Ah, Rosh Hashanah. When Ezra opened the scroll, all the people rose to their feet. Ezra blessed Adonai, and the people all answered, Amen, Amen. Then they all lifted up their hands and bowed their heads and fell prostrate with their faces to the ground. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites said to the people, Today is consecrated to Adonai your God. Don't be mournful. Don't weep. For all the people had been weeping when they heard the words of the Torah. Do you see what a privilege it is to hear the words of the Torah? These people wept to hear the words. And he said to them, go eat rich food, drink sweet drinks, and send portions to those who can't provide for themselves. For today is consecrated to our Lord. Don't be sad because the joy of Adonai is your strength. Now, some people think that means I've got to be joyful that somehow, whatever. But it's the joy of Adonai. It's his joy to strengthen us. When we are strong, he is joyful. The joy of Adonai is your strength. The Levites quieted the people, saying, Be quiet, for today is holy. Don't be sad. And then on the second day, the heads of all the fathers' clans assembled with the Kohanim and the Levites before Ezra the Torah teacher to study the words of the Torah, they found written in the Torah that Adonai had ordered through Moshe 
that the people of Israel were to live in Sukkot during the feast of the seventh month. They, they passed the word to go out and collect olive branches, myrtles, palms, and other leafy trees to make Sukkot. In verse 17, we read the entire community of those who had returned from the exile made Sukkot. They made booths and lived in the Sukkot. For the people of Israel had not done this since the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun. Yeah, in the Hebrew, it actually says, Yud Shin Vav Ayin. And the pointing tells you how to say it. It says Yeshua. It's the shortened name of Yehoshua. It's talking about Joshua. It's not talking about Yeshua or Yeshua, the Messiah. He's talking about Joshua. But I think it's interesting that anybody who's debating on how you pronounce the name of the Messiah, that it's right there in Nehemiah, Yeshua. Anyway, I just think that's interesting. It's the same name. It's just the shortened version of Yehoshua. So they read from the Torah every day, from the first to the seventh of the feast. On the eighth day, there was another solemn assembly, like we're having a week from this Monday, according to the rule in the Torah. So this was at least a partial fulfillment of Ha'azinu. After the Babylonian captivity, the rebellious spirit of the people was at least somewhat broken, and they began by humbling themselves and living in Sukkot. I want to add one interesting further point. I read earlier that in verse 39 of Deuteronomy 32, he said, see now that I, yes, I am he, there is no God beside me. Now this little teaching I got from a uh, congregational leader in Jerusalem. And uh, this word in Hebrew, when he says, I am he, is ani hu. Ani, I, hu. In Hebrew, who is he. In Hebrew, he is she. In Hebrew, me is who. But don't get confused. Ani hu means I am he. So I want to read you something very interesting from John 18. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeshua and his disciples were there. And uh, Judas brought a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. And they came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And Yeshua, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Yeshua, Minatsri, Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua of Nazareth. And Yeshua said to them, Anihu. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them, and when he said to them, Anihu, they drew back and fell to the ground.
And he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Yeshua of Nazareth. And Yeshua answered them, I have told you, Ani who? Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, meaning let the rest of these go, because the scripture must be fulfilled when it says, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Yeshua used the phrase anihu, and if anybody knew Deuteronomy 32, that is, the soldiers of the high priests and the Pharisees, now, if they knew Deuteronomy 32, why would they know Deuteronomy 32? Oh, that's right. Moses taught everyone, and they were commanded to teach their children Deuteronomy 32. So when God says in Deuteronomy 32, Anihu, I am he. I, I am he. And Yeshua says, I, I am he. We have an identification here that Yeshua is somehow part of the identity of God. That being said, as we come together on Sunday evening here, let us also remember the words of Ha'azinu. And let us be humbled, not to the point of weeping and crying, but in joy and gladness, let us celebrate the feast. Amen.